You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Matthew 6, verse 5. Hear the words of the Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who, is in, who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words and this direction that has been so lovingly given to us by Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to teach us this morning. That you'd be pleased, O oh Father, to um, press these words, Father, upon our hearts to make application to each one of us, O oh Father. And we look to you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. And I'm happy to say this morning that we, we set John's gospel aside for a few weeks to begin a new series on prayer. And I'm not saying that because I'm bored with John's gospel. <laughs> no, I wrote those words a while back. And since I wrote those words, I thought I could be taken the wrong way. And I don't mean it the wrong way. I'm really happy to be out of John. You know, I don't mean it that way. Um, but we are taking a break. We've been in John for many months and having uh, worked our way uh, through the first 12 chapters. Uh, I, I, I'm anxious to get back into John uh, I've learned a lot um, in studying John's gospel, and I will tell you this, I'm currently leading another Bible study in John's gospel, so I'm going back through and studying it again, and I'm, I'm actually learning more about John's gospel as I study it again, so it's, it's um, you know, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to take it that way, but what I'm excited about is to take a few weeks out and, and to teach on prayer, because it's something I've been mentioning that I've been wanting to do, and something I, I feel the Lord is calling us to do. And the study that I have this morning, uh, that begins this morning, is really the fruit of some personal study that I've been doing as well as a leaf out of my own uh, personal uh, prayer book. Now, I wouldn't dare do that uh, unless I wasn't standing on the shoulders of others. And you'll be happy to know that um, the, a lot of the materials that I'll be bringing over the next few weeks are, are really from... Uh, uh, really two particular uh, folks um, in general, the writings of John Knox. I don't know if any of that name means anything to anybody here, John Knox. John Knox is one of those guys that's very famous as being a um, Scottish reformer. He was a very daring and bold guy as a Scottish reformer. He's, he's very less read, though, for as famous he, as he is. He's not real widely read. Uh, there's reasons for that. Um, but... I, I, I sought him out to study uh, because he was, he was noted as a man who was very dependent upon the Lord. Um, in fact, his, one of his chief opponents during his time, Mary, Queen of Scots, and if you know anything about the history, uh, she, uh, she slaughtered quite a few reformers 
uh, during a, a short period of time. And uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, once said in regards to John Knox that I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all of the assembled armies of Europe. I can't think of too many people that anything like that has been said. Uh, so, uh, I, I, you know, I encountered that quote many, many years ago and always thought, you know, when I really get around to wanting to do a series on prayer, I'm going to start, I'm going to start with, uh, uh, with John Knox and, um, and also Matthew Henry. I mean, Matthew Henry is going to be a name that's familiar to probably all of you. And what he's known most for is um, his commentary on the whole Bible. In fact, probably some of you have his commentary. Uh, I've made use of that commentary for many, many years. It's one of the first commentaries that I own. And um, it, there's very good reason that it's as popular as it is. It's a devotional commentary, and it's a very great resource. Uh, but what a lot of folks don't know is that Matthew Henry didn't write the whole thing. Uh, it was completed after his death, and it was completed by, I think, 12 or 14 people. Now, a lot of, a lot of it was completed using his writings. Uh, but Matthew Henry stopped the work before he, could, before he finished it. He put it on pause because he realized along the way that we don't just need a, a clear exposition of Scripture. We also need instruction in prayer. And he wrote another work that's pretty well known, but not as well known as his commentary. And that work was originally entitled A Method of Prayer. And uh, I, you, can, you can find that in, in electronic form for next to nothing. I, I think the copy that I'm using was $3 or something uh, on Kindle. Uh, I'll get a hard copy of it one of these days. It's been redone. Um, in the course of this, I'll be passing out handouts, and I'll have some of the, I'll have bibliography in the handouts as we go along. Uh, but it's been re redone. Banner of Truth did a, a version of it. I don't have a copy of it, but there was a, a fellow by the name of O'Palmer Robinson. Does that mean anything to anybody? O'Palmer Robinson. I know, Dustin, you've talked about him. I think you have his book on covenants. That's his classic work. He's written some other important works, but uh, O'Palmer Robertson actually has an heirloom copy of A Method of Prayer. It, what I mean by heirloom copy is it was, I think, his great-grandmother's, and she gave it to his grandmother, and his grandmother gave it to him, and it's been used for generations in his family, and um, it literally, from what I understand, was practically falling apart. He decided, you know what, let's revamp this. Let's work this through. Let's work through the language. Let's modernize it. And Banner of Truth, I think about 10 years ago, published a... Uh, 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 a copy, a modernized copy, which might be helpful for some of you. I personally like to go back to the original. Um, but at any rate, I, I'm, I'm mentioning John Knox and Matthew Henry because what I'm going to be presenting to you has their fingerprints all over it, and I want to give credit where it's due. But this having been said, we begin with Jesus. Uh, I can mention John Knox. I can mention Matthew Henry uh, only because when you read Matthew Henry and you read John Knox, what's the first thing they do? They take you to Jesus. Uh, they take you to Jesus. And I don't want to give you the impression that we're going to study and sit at the feet of men here. No, we're going to study and sit at the feet of, of uh, Christ. And uh, uh, we're going to use some of the best resources that we have to do this. Jesus taught us how to pray, didn't he? He taught us how to pray. 
And let me say something about the title. I've borrowed the title from the very words of Jesus. The title of this morning's message is, When You Pray. If you look at verse 5 of our text, Jesus says, And when you pray. Uh, that's the title of the message uh, borrowed from, uh, from Jesus. Now, if we just think about those words, when you pray, uh, those words assume that we're going to pray, don't they? There's assumption that prayer is going to take place. Uh, and it is the posture of the disciple to pray. Um, let me stop right there and say this, that prayer is not necessarily a mark of true saving faith. It's not necessarily a mark of true saving faith. I remember many years ago when I woke up to that, when the light bulb on that went off, um, as I, I would have thought way back then, if you find someone praying and they're probably a believer, um, listen, unbelievers pray all the time. People of practitioners of many world religions that are opposed to Christianity pray all the time. You know, our, our Muslim friends pray three times a day, but they do not bow their knees to the Lordship of Christ. Now, they respect him as a prophet, but not as God in the flesh. So prayer is not in itself indicative of true saving faith. We must always remember that. But prayer is the posture of the disciple. And um, what the concern here is of Jesus is, not so much that prayer is happening, because prayer is happening. It's that prayer happens correctly. That prayer is happening properly. That prayer is happening rightly. Now, in the course of these few verses, Jesus gives us some direction. And we'll look at that a little while. We're not going to make our way all the way through it, because there's some context issues here that we need to that we need to go through. Um, I, I almost I thought about skipping that because we're pretty familiar with Matthew, but um, I don't think that would be wise. I think uh, there's going to be a lot of benefit to taking a look at the context. These words that we're reading here have a larger context. These words are part of a sermon, a sermon that's come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, probably everyone in this room has heard that phrase, Sermon on the Mount. Now, uh, the Sermon on the Mount also has a context. Right? It's the Gospel of Matthew. And you may find this really, really helpful when you're trying to think through Matthew. Bible interpreters and Bible scholars have long since identified a, an outline, so to speak, of Matthew's gospel. Uh, has anybody have heard of the five discourses in Matthew's gospel? Has anybody heard of that? If you've done a New Testament survey or you've done uh, some New Testament work, you probably would have encountered that. I'm going to show you where that is. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have the first discourse, if you will. And how do we know that? If you look at um, uh, verse chapter 8, um, actually chapter 7, verse 28, notice this phrase that Jesus uses here. He says, when Jesus, or that's used by Matthew, when Jesus finished these sayings, See that? Now, we're going to find a phrase like that. It's not going to be that word for word, but we're going to find that several times. Uh, and what that is, you've heard me talk about inclusios. You talk about brackets or, or bookends on a shelf. You know, when you're, when you're preaching and teaching like I do, I'm always looking for these bookends. I'm always looking for when a story starts and when a story stops, or when a, a, a coherent thought starts and a coherent uh, thought stops. In other words, I'm looking for a place to start preaching and a place to stop preaching. And uh, this, is, this would be the end, if you will, uh, of the brackets when Jesus finished these sayings. 
Now, if you turn to chapter 10, here we have the second of these discourses. It's, you know, if you have study Bibles, you'll probably have these in the outline. You'll need to turn there now, but they'll go by, they'll go by different titles. The Sermon on the Mount has come to be um, identified. I mean, that's a, that's a phrase that's very commonly used for chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. The Sermon on the Mount, as the last, which is often called the Olivet Discourse. We'll get to that in a moment. But these others in between sometimes can go by different names. For the sake of this morning, I'll call it the, con- the commissioning of the disciples. And if you look at um, chapter 11, verse 1, notice what is said there. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. There's that phrase again. When Jesus had finished. Okay, we had when he had finished the sayings. When he had finished instruction, um, if you continue on to chapter 13, I've often uh, make reference to this because of the parables. If you're ever looking for a parable, I know that parable, where's it at? You got a good shot of finding it in Matthew 13 because there's a bunch of parables in Matthew 13. And if you look at verse um, 53, Matthew 13, 53, uh, when Jesus had finished these parables, you see that phrase there? That's the third discourse. We could call it parables. Uh, Parables. Uh, And then if you go to Matthew 18, Matthew 18, uh, we could call this kingdom life or life in the kingdom. We could call it a number of different things. But if you look at chapter 19, verse 1, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered. So there we have sayings again. Sayings, instruction, parables sayings. And if you go to Matthew 24, a very famous one, probably second in fame to the Sermon on the Mount would be the Olivet Discourse and arguably the most difficult section in Matthew's gospel. Um, But if you look at chapter 26, verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, so there we had finished these sayings again. Um, If you look at verse 3 of Matthew 24, there you'll see where the name comes from. Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, and thus the Olivet Discourse. So here are five discourses, if you will, uh, in Matthew's Gospel. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the first of these. It's the most famous of these. And in fact, in our culture, every day you can hear people talk and make and quote from the Sermon on the Mount. They, they probably don't realize that's what they're doing. But in the last, I'd say in the last two weeks, I've heard, uh, I've heard several people quote uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, whether they realized it or not. Um, I heard the phrase, turn the other cheek. I know I'm supposed to turn the other cheek, but there's usually a but there. But I didn't turn the other cheek, and then on it goes. Um, that's a quote. That's a quote from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, or I was talking with a, um, a troubled person uh, not very long ago, and uh, as soon as I started to gently, and I mean very gently, practically hardly at all, challenge that person, the person lashed out on me a good one and said, you're judging me. Doesn't the Bible say judge not? Now, you can tell right there that these phrases are taken clear out of context. The context is not understood. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is as misunderstood as it is famous. Um, so there's another one you'll hear, judge not. and uh, Or um, the golden rule, 
You know, you hear about the golden rule. Well, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, you know, I was thinking of a movie illustration, because this is where a lot of people learn these things, is these things are in movie scores. You know, people get these from movies or they get them from songs. And I can remember as a kid, and this will date me, and I realize that some of I don't watch a lot of TV anymore, so a lot of my TV illustrations are from when I did watch a lot of TV, which is when I was a kid. And I know Stephanie's looking at me like, you're going to give me another illustration I never heard of. But there was this, some of us, some of us will remember Boss Hogg from the Dukes of Hazard, And Boss Hogg used to say, do unto others before they do unto you first. And of course, that was meant to be funny, but it would only be funny if you already knew what it's supposed to say. It's, it's supposed to say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And again, these are references to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's still in our culture. It's, it's, it's really shaped our culture, the Sermon on the Mount. But it's been massively misunderstood. And there's reasons for that. There's been a number of movements, especially in America, that have led to the misunderstanding of the Sermon on the Mount. And one of them was known as the social gospel. And I, I want to bring this up. One of the reasons I don't want to skip this, I'm going to spend a lot of time on this, and I don't want to skip it because we're in, right now as we speak, we're in another one of those such movements. We're in the midst of another movement like that. And it's important for us to know what has happened in the past so we can understand what's happening in the future. But um, at the, in the early 20th century, very early, prior to World War I, there was a movement known as the, so the social gospel. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about that. I'll give you the thumbnail sketch, the real, really quick sketch. And someone might say, Rick, that's a little bit of a simplistic sketch. And if, to that, I would say, listen, the title of my sermon is not the social gospel. The title of my sermon is on prayer. Um, but here is, um, when I think of the social gospel, this helps me think of it. If you do make a mathematical equation, if you will, and you take uh, uh, worship of education, and in the United States, education has been elevated to an idol and it has been worshiped. There are writers writing in the early 20th century from elsewhere in the world, looking at America and making comments that America practically worships education. They were being kind. America is worshiping education. So you take the worship of education and then you take the denial of total depravity or even in many cases the denial of original sin, which is full Pelagianism, and that means something to some of you. And if that doesn't mean anything to any of you, don't worry about it. Uh, so you take the worship of education, the denial of depravity. In other words, uh, you take the worship of education with the idea that we're basically okay. We just need a little help along. And then you add the Sermon on the Mount to it, and it equals the social gospel. So the premise is like this. If we can educate the masses on the Sermon on the Mount, if we can just take education, education's going to do the work. We're just going to take education to the, mass, to the masses. Uh, we're going to educate them on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to get the masses to follow the Sermon on the Mount. See the denial of total depravity. That's going to work real good. We're, gonna, we're going to get the masses to follow the Sermon on the Mount, and in doing so, the kingdom of God is going to be realized right before our eyes. Uh, that's a thumbnail sketch that some could say, Rick, it's a little simplistic. I get that. It's fine. Uh, we'll talk about it more uh, another day, but this is not simplistic, what I'm about to say. 
is that Christ's way of life is being applied to people who do not have Christ's life. It's not going to work. Christ's way of life is being applied to people who do not have Christ's life. Now, uh, some over the years have said that the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount is too high, can only apply to a certain special caste of Christian. That's not a modern idea. Um, that's actually an ancient idea. Some of the early church fathers held that, that. And they're rightfully seeing the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount is high. It's incredibly high. And, um, you know, your average garden variety believer is never going to be able to get up there. Only a certain class of people can get up there. It's my current impression that the Roman Catholic Church holds that only the clergy can follow the Sermon on the Mount. This is dangerous to do. It's dangerous to do. Why? Because, hey, you know, if only those guys can do it. I don't got to worry about it. Right? And that's oftentimes the attitude that you'll find when these kinds of things are taught. Now, early dispensationalists, now, and I want to make sure that people understand, I'm talking about early dispensationalism. Uh, dispensationalism is something that has involved uh, quite a bit, actually, uh, since the uh, uh, turn of the 19th to 20th century. But early dispensationalism, rightly observing the high ethical standards of the Sermon on the Mount, and rightly observing the strictly human impossibility to obtain them, um, basically came to the impression that the Sermon on the Mount only applied to a future millennial kingdom. Uh, the C.I. Schofield Bible, which I'm not slamming, by the way, um, actually for my collection of Bibles, I do want to get my hands on a 1907, I think it's 1907 when it first came out, in 1917, I think, is when the second edition came out. And I have, I got it from my grandmother. It's uh, uh, the new Schofield reference edition from 1967. I know I'm kind of strange collecting these Bibles, but I like to do it. And I will tell you, in, in leafing through um, the new Schofield Bible, there's a lot of stuff in there that's really helpful. Uh, really helpful. So I don't want to give you the wrong impression that I'm slamming these guys. You know, most of the people that slam these guys do not know their Bibles as well as these men did. That's a factual statement. I mean, do you, do you have, I mean, can you quote from the minor prophets as easily as you quote from John? If you can't, you don't know your Bible as well as these guys knew their Bibles. Uh, so, but here's the position they came to. Uh, they said, for these reasons, now these reasons being this high ethical standard and strictly human impossibility to attain those high standards, they say, for these reasons, now this is the early edition of the Schofield Bible, for these reasons, the Sermon on the Mount in its primary application gives neither the privilege nor the duty of the church. Now, again, they're making distinctions that we wouldn't make between Israel and the church. It's part of the, of the, of the dispensational mindset there. Uh, and they're saying that the Sermon on the Mount, which we're reading from, if they're right, then there's probably not a lot of point in preaching on this because this is for another age. It's not even for the age that we're in right now. Now, I'm bringing this up to you because the C.I. Schofield Bible enjoyed um, influence that was huge. In fact, I would think I'm not a history person at all. I'm just a lay person nor am I a political science major, so I'm just going to talk as an armchair guy. Uh, 
I would say that even our many of our present conservative positions on Israel are indebted to the Schofield Bible. And you talk about how massive of an influence the Schofield Bible has had. It hasn't all been bad at all. Um, actually, much of the money of those notes actually are are, are quite helpful. Um, one of the early, one of the dispensational writers wrote this, the, and this is early dispensationalism, by the way. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount must be taken in its wholeness and its literalness. This sermon cannot be in its plain import and be applied to Christians universally. It has been tried in spots, but it has always been like planting a beautiful flower in stony ground or a dry and withering atmosphere. Now, I'm going to take a guess that this author is looking at the social gospel movement and seeing the failure of the social gospel movement because they're trying to take the social, they're trying to take the sermon of the mount to the masses. And that's going to fail. You better believe that's going to fail uh, because the people without Christ's life in them do not have the ability to follow this. It's going to fail. It's certainly going to. That, that's why you get the butt. I know I should have turned the other cheek, but. You know, I mean, a lot of people like to say stuff that like that to me. They'll come up, hey, you know, hey, pastor, come here. You know, I know I shouldn't have done this, but the other day I did this, you know, and I know I should have turned the other cheek, but in the meantime, their knuckles are got bark missing off of them, you know? So you know how the butt went, right? They, listen, apart from Christ's new life, I mean, come on. Those who are in Christ now, how hard it is to follow these things when you've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. How are you going to do this without the Holy Spirit? You're not. And I think these authors are looking at this. They're saying, listen, this has been tried. This has been tried and it has failed. Now, I'm happy to say, and I meant to bring with me the new Schofield Bible because I have that old, from my, it was given to me by my grandmother, that old edition. I meant to bring it. But the new Schofield Bible admitted this and amended it with this note, quote, although the law as expressed in the Sermon on the Mount cannot save sinners, and the redeemed of the present age are not under the law. Nevertheless, both the Mosaic Law and the Sermon on the Mount are part of Holy Scripture, which is inspired by God and therefore profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for the redeemed of all ages. This is why I say this stuff. That, that, uh, uh, amen. Amen. Now, I believe the work on the new Schofield Bible began around 1959. And if that's the case, the old Schofield Bible had been out for 50 years. And it had a lot of influence, massive influence, influencing the, the, the relationship between the United States and, and Israel, influencing world policy. Um, some of the early, you know, working through this just reminded me very warmly of some of the old dispensationalists that I used to study um, Dwight Pentecost. Does that name mean anything to anybody? Uh, J.D. Pentecost. I had one of his books, and I, I dug it up because I was thinking about it very warmly. He had a book on the works of Christ, and I, I, remember, um, I remember spending so much time with that book, learning so much from that book on the background and on doctrine, and I, I opened it up. I found a receipt in it from 2004, um, I haven't used it in a really long time, but I have things underlined all through that book. I learned so much from those men. And, and I think warmly, probably the one who, who I probably enjoyed the most was J. Vernon McGee. Does anybody remember J. Vernon McGee on the radio? The, um, you know, these guys, these Southern preachers, um, 
they had the ability to grip you and leave you with stuff that just, you know, he was talking about a person making a big show. I once served in a church, my friends, and I mean to tell you, this man put on a show. Why, he carried a Bible that was so big, he leaned to one side, you know, and it's just hilarious, you know. I mean, I, I don't remember the point of his sermon. It's the problem with, with illustrations. You use too strong of an illustration, you remember the illustration and not the sermon. But, um, but I, I learned so much from them. Um, they, I have different views on, on things than them, but I can tell you right now, J. Vernon McGee never cared what Rick Anderson thought about his position, whether to make a distinction between the church and Israel and some of these other things. He doesn't care. Um, Dwight Pentecost doesn't care. Dwight Pentecost lived to be uh, 99 years old. He died four days after his 99th birthday. Uh, I don't know why I remember this, but he was born on um, April 24th, 1915. He died on a April 28th, 1914. I don't know why I remember that, but I think it's accurate. Um, probably because he lived four days after his uh, 99th birthday. I learned a lot from him, and, and I am looking forward to spending eternity with these great men of the Lord. Uh, so I'm not slamming them, but um, J. Vernon McGee and others, J. Vernon McGee saw the Sermon on the Mount really in terms of the law. How do we use the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is the law. We use it as the law, like we use the, whole, the Ten Commandments, uh, using, using it in the sense of convicting one of sin. Now, is that a right use of the Sermon on the Mount? You bet it is. Uh, I can speak from personal experience. I was convicted of my sin by studying uh, Moses and the law and studying the Sermon on the Mount. It was those two things. Some of you have heard my testimony, and I make reference to both every time I tell it, if you get the length of edition. You know, preacher types. Um, it was two those things. Well, I couldn't get anyone to share me the gospel. I asked all kinds of people, what is the gospel? I got a different answer from everybody. It didn't make no difference if they were a preacher or what they were. I was getting a different answer from everybody. I come to faith studying my Bible, and I come to conviction of sin by studying the commandments and studying the Sermon on the Mount. That's how I personally came to conviction of sin. So, I, I, you know, in, J, in the meantime, I'm listening to J. Vernon McGee. And, and, you know, this, you know, you can go online and listen to all his tapes. People have put them up and you can even listen to just little portions of them. Um, and I listened to, uh, very warmly listened to him speak about the... Um, about the um, Sermon on the Mount. I wouldn't go by memory on that, but he referred to it basically the law of the kingdom, and he made a reference of it being the law of the kingdom of the millennium, again, following after C.I. Schofield. Does that mean you can't, couldn't come to faith through J. Vernon McGee? They still play him on the radio now. There's still funding available to play him. The Lord has sustained that ministry. He died in 1988. He was born in 1904. His ministry is still being carried on. It's been carried on in many languages because he taught Christ. He taught Christ. You come to faith listening to him for sure. But I think there's a better way for us to understand the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to plow through all this because depending on our backgrounds, we might have, even in a group this size, we might have a different idea how the Sermon on the Mount should be applied. And I, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you the start of how I understand and how I think it should be understood. And John Stott, who wrote a, a lot about the Sermon on the Mount, and I commend his books to you. I meant to bring one so I could show it to you. Um, 
He writes this, To my mind, no two words sum up the Sermon on the Mount's intention better or indicate more clearly its challenge to the modern world than the expression Christian counterculture. Christian counterculture. I'm going to give you, I think, what's a better phrase than that. I believe John Stott wrote that about 1978. I do not believe if John Stott was alive today, he would use that phrase for reasons we don't have time to get into. And I'm going to give you a phrase that I think works a little better in a moment. But church, the church growth movement for the, I don't know how many years has sought to conform the church to the world over and over and over again. And uh, the idea is we're going to become more and more like the world as if we need any help in that area um, so that we will attract the world. And it's a flawed, it's a, it's a very flawed presupposition. In fact, what attracts the world to the church is when the church is radically different than the world. Um, backsliding and apostasy has gone on in every age. Why do we want to contribute more to that uh, and become more and more like the world? The answer is we don't. Um, first Peter, and when I quote First Peter 2.9, I can't help but to think of the old King James translation. And I love the King James translation of this for this reason. I'll, I'll read it to you. Listen to it. But ye are a chosen generation. He's speaking of the church. He's speaking of every believer, every person who is in Christ. So if you're in Christ this morning, he's speaking of you. And he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And listen to this, a peculiar people. That's the phrase I think we should use. Because it's, it's not getting into this culture stuff and this counterculture stuff, which is a whole mess. And it's a whole talk for now. We could talk, I could talk for 45 minutes on that, why we shouldn't use that. And I don't want to get into that. Um, but peculiar people. The ESV re references as a people for his own possession. That's true. It's, it's accurate. But think about it. I think peculiar people. We're to be peculiar people. That is wonderful, and I don't, I, I don't want you to turn there. I mean, just listen, because we've already read the passage earlier. But I want to go back to Leviticus, and I promised we would look at it again. Uh, just listen. Now, the context of this Leviticus 18 passage, which we read earlier, is the Lord has used Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. He's got them out in the wilderness, and he says to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, and listen to this phrase, I am the Lord your God. Now what a sentence. A whole sermon could be preached on that line right there. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Lord with all capital letters, Yahweh. He could just said, I'm Yahweh. But he goes on to say, I am also your God. It's covenantal language. I have brought you out of Egypt, and you are my peculiar people. You are my peculiar people. In verse 3, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it, in the Sermon on the Mount. 
You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You think he wants to get that across? You want to talk about Ecclusio. You want to talk about brackets. I am the Lord your God at the beginning. I am the Lord your God at the end. Don't be like them. It's the same message, isn't it? You know, unless we think that's just Old Testament stuff. Um, well, let's go back to our text in Matthew 5. You might at this point forgot what was our text. Uh, Matthew 6, I'm sorry, verse 5. And in fact, if you go to Matthew 6, verse 8, to our scripture memory verse, John Stott holds that this is the key to the whole Sermon on the Mount. I think he's right. I think he's 100% on. Do not be like them. Because he goes on to say every paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount is, is fitted to this context, fitted to this contrast, where here's what they are like, and you're not to be like that. Here's what they are like, don't be like them. Here's what they do, don't do this. Here is their righteousness. Your righteousness must exceed it. It's just said over and over and over again through the whole thing. And we might ask ourselves of verse 8, do not be like them. Well, who is the them? Well, in verse 7, we have the Gentiles. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. In other words, do not be like the Gentiles. But also we could say, well, the hypocrites. Uh, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Or if you turn back to chapter 5, verse 20, um, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, your righteousness must not be like their righteousness. You know, it must be different. It must be higher. It must be better. So we have the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, the Gentiles. Uh, we have all of these groups being covered. So how do we apply all of this? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is useful in convicting of sin for sure. It will do that. But it's also a directive only to the true disciple of Christ. It's a directive to show how we, as God's peculiar people, are to live. That's why I like the phrase peculiar people. I wouldn't use Christian counterculture. I like peculiar people. We are called to be different. Don't be like them. So the Sermon on the Mount applies to all true believers. To the unbeliever, it has application to lead him or her into a conviction of sin so that they'll come to Christ. But after they come to Christ and receive his new life, well, now that's a directive in order to show us how to be a peculiar person in Christ. And um, we come to Jesus' instruction on prayer. Someone might just say, wow, Rick, I thought we were never going to get to prayer. But I think at this point you understand why I took the route I took. It's not that Jesus is not just not concerned that prayer is going to take place. He sees everything. He knows prayer is taking place. What he's concerned about is that prayer be taking place properly, that it be taking place rightly, that it be taking place, place correctly. And he says in verse 5, when you pray, the title of this message, okay, so when you get around to praying, I don't want you to be like them. I don't want you to do what they do. You must not be like the hypocrites. Well, what's the problem with the hypocrites? Well, their chief and principal problem is they want to be seen by other people. They want to see, be seen by other people. I mean, their goal and purpose was not to have deep communion with God. Their goal and purpose was praise. And that's a powerful... Listen, praise is a powerful... The things people do to get attention, 
you know, are amazing, <laughs> amazing uh, what people will do to get attention. Uh, their purpose was not to have deep communion with God. Their goal was praise from other people, and they seek it. They seek this vanity by pretending to pray. Uh, so they run right into God's presence with this pretense and commit an atrocious crime against God. Now, the word hypocrite, many of you will know, is a word borrowed from the stage. It's a play actor. It's someone who pretends to be other than what he is. That's a lexicon definition. I forget what lexicon because I didn't put a reference down in my notes. Um, but one of the lexicons. Um, and the tragedy of all this is they receive their reward. If you look at the end of verse 5 there, Jesus says, truly I say to you, they've received their reward. Um, we, we could look at this this way. We could see what God's saying, okay, you guys want praise? You want all the praise from other people? Okay, you'll get a little praise from other people, but you're not getting anything else. You're not going to get anything else. You received your reward. And that's tragic and sad, isn't it? It's tragic and sad. Well, someone, I was thinking about how to apply this yesterday. Tammy and I were on our way over to Tim Hortons, and I was bouncing some of this off Tammy, and kind of jokingly, I was like, you know, um, Jesus says in verse 5 that they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. And I told, asked Tammy, I said, how many folks do you think in Tri-State Community Church want to march on down to Carolina Avenue and be seen praying? Um, I don't believe that a single person in this congregation has been tempted to do that, to run down the main street and pretend like you're praying so that you could get attention. Am I wrong in that? I think uh, I'm accurate, right? Nobody's ever wanted to do that. If you, maybe it's best you don't answer out loud. But you, you can talk to me after the service. I would appreciate it. Um, but I am assuming that the answer is no across the board. Uh, so what's the application? Well, you know... Maybe we're not tempted to put on a little show down on Main Street, but if you've ever been asked to pray at a family Thanksgiving dinner, then you may have suddenly experienced something, maybe unexpectedly, but you suddenly experienced, uh-oh, you know, Cousin Ernie, the atheist, is here, and Uncle Albert, um, you know, he, he's got some wild views about things. I better watch how I pray. Now, why do I know that? Anybody want to ask me why I know that? It's because I pray in public all the time. And I, I, I'll tell you, when I pray in public, when I prayed this morning, I can tell you I forgot about all of you while I was praying. I don't want you to take that the wrong way. You need me every Sunday to forget all about you for reasons I'm about to talk about. I forgot all about you. I forgot all about the fact I'm standing here and there's a camera on. I forgot about all of that. Um, and there's a reason for that, which we're going to get into. But what I want to say to you this morning is I didn't always do that. When I started out, I used to be really nervous, really nervous, incredibly nervous. And I worried about what everybody's, what's everybody thinking? Uh, am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? Am I? And the answer is no, you're not doing it right. You just started but I was so self-conscious about it. You know, am I doing that? It's the way we all are when we start to do things, isn't it? I'm not making an excuse. But one thing the Lord showed me and caught me at some point in this is like, hey, Rick, you're more concerned about what people think about your prayers than you are of what I think about your prayers. And where was I at? I was the hypocrite. Maybe not as 
um, as blatantly. We could call it a sister crime to what's being committed or a close cousin to what's being committed there, could we not? Um, and then we have to begin, to, okay, Jesus, okay, what do we do about it? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 6 what to do about it. He says, listen, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret, who sees in secret will reward you. Well, wait a second, Lord, I can't do this in secret. Are you saying that we shouldn't pray in public? The answer to that is emphatically no. We have examples uh, in the Scriptures of people praying publicly. Besides that, when Jesus gets around to teaching us uh, prayer in verse 9, notice it's plural. Not my Father, it's our Father. It's plural. And in fact, our English language has become so impoverished um, you know, folks today uh, with the textbook vocabulary and textbook syntax oftentimes think they're so much smarter because they can race around on a, on a smartphone. They're so much smarter than everyone older than them uh, because they can do all these crazy things on a smartphone and an older person might go, how does this thing work? I don't even know how it works. But let the older person sit down and read the King James Bible and you're going to see they'll shine. You know, like when I read, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. <laughs> Someone might read that and say, man, I don't know what that means. Well, you could go to your aged grandmother and you could ask her what it means. You know, the grandmother that only went to the eighth grade, she knows what it means. And she'd say, sweetie, here's what it means. Thou is singular. It's speaking about Prayer, you know, it's speaking about it's speaking about just you praying by yourself. That's what thou means. It, when thou, that means when you, you, just you, not all of us together, but you. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which sees in secret shall reward you. He will reward you. you see, we have lost our ability to make a determination between you singular and you plural. They're both you. And we get into a mess sometimes in our modern English Bibles whenever we study them because we forget. Um, context doesn't always make it real clear. But here are the scriptures. But the, the case languages in the original make it really clear. And the King James is following that. So this brings us to our first principle that I want to bring. We're not going to get through all of them, but I'm going to give you a couple. And, and this is sometimes referred to as recollection. Has anybody ever heard this in prayer? The word recollection in regards to prayer. Okay, recollection. What is recollection? Well, we need to recall what we're doing. In other words, remember what you're doing. Let's remember what we're doing. We're approaching God. We're approaching God. Here, we simply remember what this exercise involves, but more importantly, we remember who we're doing it with. Who are we approaching? I must not approach prayer with the goal of having an effect on people who are listening or even having an effect on myself. I need, to go all, I need to be all about remembering who it is I'm approaching. Jesus says, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father. And this brings us to the next one. You have re recollection, then you have exclusion. This is a really important principle. I'm going to let Martin Lloyd-Jones give us instruction in this. This is, a this is from the writings of Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote a massive wonderful volume on the Sermon on the Mount. He writes, the principle is that there are certain things which we have to shut out, whether we are praying in public or whether we are praying in secret. Here are some of them. You shut out and forget other people. This is in our approach. 
Then you shut out and forget yourself. That is what is meant by entering thy closet. Now, some of us may have a room in our house, kind of like the movie War Room. There's one I got, Stephanie. That's a modern one, right? Uh, the War Room, uh, where this woman, I don't know, maybe none of you have seen it. I don't know, looking at your faces, where she has this room in her house, and it's just for prayer, and it's her prayer closet. Some of us may be blessed to have a room in our home uh, for that purpose, and that's fine. But that's not exactly what Jesus is meaning here. What Jesus is getting at is shutting out all other things in our approach to God. And it's important that we understand that this can be done anywhere. This can be done in a crowded jail cell. And it was done in a crowded jail cell by John Bunyan in Bedford, England, who was a great man of prayer. Shut everything out. And even though you're standing in a crowded jail cell, you're in your room. You're in your place. You're shut out from all, everything around you. You're shut out. Shutting out all our things in our approach to God. We can do this in the gym. We can do this at the workplace. We can even do it in the pulpit. It must be done in the pulpit, actually. It must be done during the pastoral prayer. Everything has to get shut out initially uh, because of what we're doing. Now, of course, we're going to be praying for, ple- for people, and we'll enter into supplication. But right now, we're talking about the approach to God. We're talking about the approach. Too often, we commit the sin of running past the approach and going right to the supplication, don't we? I catch myself doing that even now, and I know this stuff. Lord, please forgive me. I mean, if I, it's unbelief, by the way. It's unbelief. Let's just call it what it is. It's unbelief. We forget what we're doing. We forget who we're talking to. If we could see him in his august majesty, I would submit we would never do that. Oh, my goodness. Our approach would be just fine. We'd be flat face on the floor. Probably forgetting what we come here for in the first place. So you see, it's rooted in unbelief. It needs to be confessed. And, And let's... You know, if you're hearing this all for the first time, um, I don't want to get in the way of any conviction the Holy Spirit might be doing in our hearts, but I do want to say this. Our God knows we're weak. He knows that we're just dust, and he knows in our weakness, and he's been putting up with this probably for a long time. What do we do? We confess it. We recollect next time we go into prayer. Exclusion, recollection, exclusion, Um, And then realization. I'll give this one to you and we'll close. Realization. Again, Lloyd-Jones says, we must realize we're in the presence of God. Before we begin to utter words, we always ought to do this. If you listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones preach, and we're blessed to have some tapes, the quality of them aren't so good. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching this probably in the late 50s. Um, They're not very good, but you'll notice when when he concludes... Um, his sermon, oftentimes there's a long gap before he prays. What is he doing? I, I'm going to guess he's, he's realiz- it's realization. It's recollection, exclusion, realization. He's just been preaching for an hour. Um, he says, we must realize we're in the presence of God before we begin to utter words. We always ought to do this. This is before we say anything. We should say to ourselves, I am now entering into the audience chamber of that God, the Almighty, the Absolute, the Eternal and Great God, with all His power and His might and majesty, that God who is a consuming fire, that God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all, that utter, absolute, holy God. It's His presence that we're entering into. 
That's realization. So in conclusion, where have we been? There's a great need for renovation of everything we do. And for that reason, I think when we're done with John's gospel, we're going to go to Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're a peculiar people. We need to learn how to live as a peculiar people. We need to rejoice for Jesus has given us instruction in it. We need to rejoice because Jesus has given us empowerment to do it. We're never going to reach the high ethic perfectly, but we're called to reach for it, aren't we? We're called to reach for it. So the Sermon on the Mount is our instruction to mark our new way of living, and everything about us is to be different, including our prayer life, especially our prayer life. So when we pray, don't be like them. Be radically different. Recollect. Here we're simply remembering what we're doing. More importantly, remembering who we're doing it with. Uh, exclusion. This is shutting out all other things in our approach to God. Uh, we'll bring our needs to him for uh, later, but first let's shut out everything. Uh, shut out all others, shut out all stuff, shut out ourselves. In realization, we realize we're in the presence of God. You're going to get these things over again, so if you don't remember them, don't worry about it, because um, we're going to look at those many more times. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, oh Lord, the, the art of praying. How do I pray after preaching a message like this? Oh, Father, we look to you. Uh, we look to you and we recollect. Oh, Father, we recollect just who you are. We recollect, oh, Father, just how wonderful you are, how merciful you are. Oh, Father, we exclude all others. Oh, Father, we realize just who we're dealing with. We realize who you are in your august majesty. We realize who you are in your faithfulness. We realize who you are as lawgiver. We realize what you're like by your law. And, oh, Father, we come and we ask you, oh, Lord, teach us to pray. And we've learned a few things this morning. We've learned that the Sermon of the Mount is our directive. Oh, Father, we thank you. You've loved us enough not only to give us an instrument to convict us of our sin, which the Sermon on the Mount does, but it also gives us direction in how to be a peculiar people, how we can be these, the people that you have called us to be, a people that are different, a people, a people that will certainly uh, repel many, but a people that will certainly attract many others. And Father, I thank you for that work. You've done that work. You've done a lot of that work here in Tri-State, and that's why we see people come up those steps. And Father, we thank you that you bring people up these steps. And there, there are many who will come up the steps and leave. They just, they're not interested in what we do. Father, there are many that come up the steps and love what we're doing. And Father, we thank you for that. It's, it's the choice is in your hands, Father. And we thank you for that. And, oh, Lord, we thank you. Make us, oh, Father, a peculiar people, and especially, Father, uh, make, us a, 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 make us to be a peculiar people in our prayer life, oh, Lord, uh, that we would begin to uh, look at these principles and begin to apply these principles. We'll fail many times, oh, Father, but you are a Father, and you, you teach and train us with loving hands, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.